Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Here's something else you know. On Crazy Money, we analyze the relationship between money and happiness, work and meaning through the lens of my guests' expertise and or money journeys. On today's episode, we're getting three previous guests together to have a panel discussion to analyze and kind of... uh, pull apart the meaning of the 1987 classic Oliver Stone film, Wall Street. You saw it most likely. It stars Charlie Sheen as Bud Fox, Michael Douglas as Gordon Gecko, and Daryl Hannah as Darianne. They're at times respective and or mutual girlfriend. The movie is fascinating, and I want to talk about it for just a second in just a minute. But first, I want to invite you to come see me tell jokes in public on stage. I've got a great show I'm headlining in April, April 22nd in Woodstock, Georgia at Mad Life Studios. It is a killer venue, great sound, great room, great bar. Come out to Woodstock and bring your friends on April 22nd. I'll be doing a full headliner set. I'm also doing private gigs at Ansley Country Club next week and Marietta Country Club. So if you've got a country club, why don't you shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com and maybe we can get something put together for you guys. I will also be at the Omni Comedy Club at the Omni Hotel in the Battery on April 17th for the Best of Atlanta show. So come out. Hey, guess what else I have coming up? Next Monday, I'm getting my second Pfizer vaccine shot. I'm going to be bulletproof two weeks after that. And I encourage you, if you haven't gotten your shot, to get busy. Look up vaccines in your area on the Google. All states are loosening restrictions so that you probably are eligible today, even if you don't know it. So Google your local department of public health, Google your local hospital, figure out where the vaccine is going to be near you. Get the Pfizer one. It's the best. All right, let's talk about who's on this panel. Tony Duff is what was the third guest on this podcast. He is also the author of a book called The Buy Side, his memoir about his time on Wall Street, how he made millions and then lost his career to cocaine addiction. He's now a writer, and he is a very interesting and funny dude. So I'm glad to have him on the panel. Also, Lisa Bernbach, the author of the official Preppy Handbook. She is a cultural commentator, and her book came out, oh, I don't know, probably four or five years before the movie Wall Street did. So she has a lot of great insights into the culture and the fashion and the vibe of New York City during the time that Oliver Stone is both celebrating and is he satirizing it? No, I suppose he's just putting it out there for us to see and make our own judgments. Hear that in the background? Hear that click, click, click? That's the dog scratching. Also joining us, Brad Klontz, financial psychologist and author of Money Mammoth, among other excellent books about money and our relationship there too. This episode is moderated by my friend A.M. Bott and me. We did this on the Clubhouse app. If you all are interested in joining the Clubhouse app, shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I got a few extra invitations I can send your way. This, my friends, is our panel discussion with Tony Duff, Lisa Bernbach, and Brad Klontz. I want to start by asking my co-moderator, Al. Al, let's say you were talking to a niece, a nephew, or uh, otherwise unrelated member of the millennial or Gen Z generation's how would you explain to them the cultural significance of the movie Wall Street? I think it's fair to say that this movie, more than any other, made slick back hair both acceptable and desirable. That's probably the biggest impact. More seriously, I think for folks who kind of grew up with this era, I think it came on the tail end of the Reagan era. 
It came at a time when there was a lot of kind of, I don't know, pent up countercultural outrage. I mean, you watch the movie again, and it's, I don't think it's a terribly good film. I think it's, a, you know, kind of really over the top in its messaging. And yet the messaging at the time was something that people really, at least some people really wanted to hear. And then I think it spoke to a lot of stuff that was going on in the economy, or, or at least that we were feeling going on in the economy. I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent, maybe we'll come to it in the conversation, but it, it captured a certain tone in the country and a certain mythology about who we thought was responsible for what was going on. So this film came out less than two months after Black Monday, the 1987 October dip in the markets where they went down, I think, 22% in one day. But the film was already in the can before that news happened. So what were the things happening in the economy that you're referring to, Al? All of a sudden, I'm pressured to, to go back and, and remember my 80s uh, economics. You're talking about junk bonds and corporate takeovers yeah, yeah. and things like that. Corporate takeovers, exactly right. I was referencing, you know, the stock market crash. I remember, you know, a lot of just, you know, kind of failing businesses. We were coming out of that 70s. The 70s is when we were first kind of realizing the degree of corporate competition we were going to have to deal with. And uh, the 80s, I don't know. I, I think the kind of celebrity business person was born in the 80s, right? And this whole kind of notion of finance and business being kind of central in American society as a, something to aspire to. Got it. Let's take a step back and talk about where we were culturally in the 1980s, and no better person to comment on that than Lisa Bernbach, cultural commentator whose book, The Preppy Handbook, was a cultural phenomenon in the early 1980s. Lisa, to what extent do you think the film captures the vibe of mid-1980s New York City? Well, it's an exaggeration, for sure. No one has ever accused Oliver Stone of being a subtle filmmaker. <laughs> so, you know, it's over the top. Here's Michael Douglas playing the archetypal villain with slick back hair. And he has an office, an exaggerated office, you know, with Basquiat's on the wall. And he has a Julian Schnabel painting in one of the scenes. And the braces and the gorgeous suits and the gold Cartier watches. I mean, the movie is full of the excesses of the time in New York in the 80s before this crash that you mentioned, this crash of which you speak. There was a craziness here. There were young people like the Charlie Sheen character who were spending money like drunks you know, they found someone they admired as Bud, the character Charlie Sheen plays, admires Michael Douglas's Gordon Gecko, and immediately imitate it on a big scale, you know, by 12 suits instead of one. If people didn't see it, I guess we can compare and contrast it to The Wolf of Wall Street in a little bit. But there was a lot of that. There were restaurants in New York at the time. I'm thinking of one called The Quilted Giraffe where they famously sold a very exquisite dish called beggar's purses. Beggar's purses were little tiny doughy sacks of caviar tied with a chive leaf in a pretty bow. You know, that, that was excessive. And it was made so that someone could show off and order a $90 appetizer to either show off on a date or show off to a potential customer or investor. There was something extremely fake and 
overwrought about those days. It seems like New York had many things going on, as New York always does. It's the post-punk world. Hip-hop is starting uptown. Downtown is CBGB's. And the bankers say, you know, oh, let's go slumming. Let's go slumming downtown. Let's go to CBGB's. Let's go to the mud club. Let's. There was a lot of cocaine and there was a lot of late nights. And suddenly this whole class of people were running New York in a way. And this is before Bloomberg and before Giuliani, before New York got clean again. Oh, yes. We were proud and dirty. <laughs> this is our mayor. We were grimy, but we were sexy. There you go. There you go. Thank you very much. Be here all night. Keep it going. You just keep it going. Tony, let's talk about what we saw on the trading floor. You were not a retail broker like Bud, who was using the white pages or the zip code books to call dentists and doctors and try to unload some stock on them. But to what extent, a caveat also that this was, what, seven or eight years before you started on Wall Street, but to what extent does the trading floor you see in the movie mirror the way well, this stock I market mean, worked at the time? Sure. I started February of 94, okay? So, and I started Morgan Stanley's private wealth management. So it was high-end retail. So it was literally where, where Bud Fox was sitting. And it was a really interesting time because it was pre-internet, right? Pre-technology. And so Oliver Stone did an excellent job of capturing the essence. And like some of the other speakers have said, you know, yes, it is over the top. But what I think is so magical about the movie is Oliver Stone celebrated it and he was conflicted while he was making the movie at the same time, right? So he was definitely showing the warts and he was showing the ugly side of wall street while also sort of celebrating. And that's exactly where the country was at that time. I thought they did a fantastic job of capturing the essence pre-technology when it was just people shouting two phones on both ears. It was like, a, you know, a fraternity house and just people all day taking shots at each other, one liners. So I thought they did a great job with that. Lisa was kind enough to mention cocaine, with which you had a little bit of experience. Well, I actually still wanted to jump on Lisa's comment. So I went through a caviar phase, and <laughs> I have to tell you, and I'm being completely honest, ordering caviar was so much more fun than eating it, right? So there was just some, some high associated with ordering some obscene amount of food. But yeah, cocaine was very prevalent in my story and on Wall Street. And I thought they did a good job where, you know, Lisa mentioned The Wolf of Wall Street, and that was just like so over the top. It wasn't realistic. But in Wall Street, I thought they did a good job in terms of it was there. And there were scenes where I felt like it was there, but we're not seeing it. But Wall Street and cocaine have been definitely linked. But, you know, it's not the kind of thing where Everybody on Wall Street does cocaine. It's not like that. But can you explain briefly why there's so much cocaine and caviar to be consumed when you're working, as you eventually did on the buy side on Wall Street? Sure. I mean, I think Wall Street typically attracts a certain type of personality who likes adrenaline, likes highs. And so whether it's money or expensive things, food, cars, drugs, there's this rush that you get. And so it kind of went hand in hand. And for me, it was the perfect, you know, companion that night. And, you know, I used to say, you know, like when the office lights went out and the city lights came on, like that was my time to shine. And, you know, what better drug than cocaine to get me through the night? 
and the reason that there's so much flying around is because there's so much money being invested in entertaining people to get the business, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm in my early thirties, you know, I'm making a really, really good living. I'm making you know a couple of million dollars a year, but that isn't even my biggest perk. I work at a hedge fund. I'm the head trader where we pay the street $50 million in commissions, right? So that means there are 30 to 40 men and women, mostly men, who are trying to get a piece of that $50 million pie. And the best way to get a piece of that pie is tell me how good looking I am, how funny I am, take me to Vegas, whatever it is. But that was really, was my ticket. I was giving out $50 million. You have my attention with that. And if I had cocaine, I'd bring it to our party, but I'm <laughs> Would you do you know so sorry, I'm getting off track a little bit, but you know how 420 is synonymous with with weed? Yes. So I used to I like as AOLN's messenger, I would I am people and I'd be like, meet me at 415. And that was my code for cocaine because it's faster than weed. And so like they knew if they said meet me at 415, that they were supposed to show up with cocaine in their pocket. Wow. Wow. Lots of interesting character things going on there. And as it relates to people's relationship with money and power, Brad Klontz is kind of a, not kind of, he is a, a well-studied expert in the field. Brad, again, for those in the audience, Brad is a financial therapist, the author of several books, including Money Mammoth and Mind Over Money. Brad, you have a background in taking a look at the relationship people form with money in their youth. As you look at the main characters, Bud Fox, played by Charlie Sheen, Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas, and Darianne, played by Daryl Hannah, how would you characterize each of these characters' relationship to money and, and what their motivations are? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me. I don't have the stories of doing Coke on Wall Street. I wish I did. We can have an IPA in Boulder sometime. Okay, excellent. That sounds good. That sounds good. So as a financial psychologist, I'm really tuned into the family dynamics, the socioeconomic status of the various characters, and how this has created a set of beliefs, and then, of course, the behaviors that follow from that. And so, quite obvious, Gordon Gecko is the extreme version of what we call in financial psychology somebody who's really addicted to status around money. And so this is one of the money scripts that we found in our research. Interestingly, we did one study with people who had a net worth about 11 million, compared them to middle-class people, and they were more likely to endorse these types of beliefs. And I'm sure Tony's really going to, you know, th this isn't a surprise to him, but where people are really connecting their self-worth, their self-esteem to their status around money. So my self-worth equals my net worth. And so this really gets built into the character. And that's where we are very, very focused on how other people are perceiving us. So we want to, of course, dress very well. We want to show off, that kind of thing. So Gordon Gecko is just the classic extreme example, like very extreme example of that addiction to status and, and everything that money can provide us. Well, I was going to ask, you know, there's the classic scene where after Bud finds out that Gordon's going to wreck Blue Star Airlines, where his father works, he goes in and he asks him into his office, which, you know, as Lisa talked about, is paneled with Basquiat's and things like that. It's incredibly opulent. And he asks, how much is enough? And Gecko looks at him like he just doesn't get it. That's exactly right. And so with some of the billionaires that I've worked with over the years, it's like, how much is enough? And it's like, some of them are really attuned to their ranking on the list of richest people in the country. And so definitely baked in, 
because if it wasn't baked into your self-esteem and your vision of yourself, eventually you might even stop. You know, you wouldn't be sort of addicted to the game and the, the challenge and the chase and the competition. And so obviously Gordon Gecko is, is an extreme example of that. And then, you know, on, on the flip side of that, I'll just flip over to Bud's father, who seems to be more of a working class kind of guy, right? And so he's obviously much lower socioeconomic status, working class. So Bud, he also has some what I would think were negative associations with money and rich people. And so in our studies, we call that money avoidance beliefs. And the research we've done on that, if you have negative beliefs around rich people and the wealthy, because that's sort of that mindset, rich people are greedy, money corrupts, maybe there's even virtue in having less money. Now, our studies show that this isn't a great mindset in terms of money if you want to grow your income, grow your net worth, and people have a tendency to sabotage themselves financially. But I see Carl Fox, you know, that really came out in comparison to the extreme with Gordon Gecko. And then and then you have Bud Fox, Charlie Sheen, who is in between there, right? He's wrestling back and forth. Like he has a lot of attachment to his father, his working class upbringing, but he's really, really attracted to Gordon Gecko and, and all the trappings that wealth and power and status and success and that adrenaline rush. And so I see him bouncing back and forth between those within the movie. And he really believes that if I can get more money, if I can get this status, then I'll be happier, then I'll be fulfilled. And then throughout the course of the movie, you see that we shine a light on that. And, and you know, ultimately having all the money you want, having all the success you want doesn't magically change your life, doesn't magically make you feel better about yourself, doesn't take away all your problems. But really that drive to have more money, have more stuff really was ringing true for Bud Fox. And I got to say too, like from an outside perspective, I didn't grow up on Wall Street. I grew up in the Midwest. And a movie like Wall Street really did show like in a really clear way, perhaps it created an entire generation of money avoidant people who basically have negative beliefs around rich people, around the stock market, around trading. And so I was interested from that perspective, too, because I actually remember seeing this back in the 80s. And that was sort of the feeling I walked away with. It's like, wow, everybody's slimy and greedy and money corrupts. (laughs) Turny. (laughs) Exactly, turny. So actually, like from a cultural level, I think it was probably a manifestation of the mindset of the screenwriters. I know Oliver Stone was one. It was probably in reflection of that. There was a political message there at some point, whether you want to call it politics or at least a mindset around money and a message to be put out. I'm just curious about how that impacted people who are watching the movie. Lisa, as you were watching this again today, you know, we talked about the excess of caviar and cocaine and the art that became incredibly valuable just because it became something people wanted. How is it manifest in the clothes that people wore? Did you see did you see examples of just over-the-top fashion that were reflective of the opulence of the era? Well, yes. As I pointed out earlier, the gold watches were everywhere. They were blinding. I mean, Michael Douglas wore an unusual amount of gold jewelry. What I loved is he said, oh, you know, they were playing squash at the Yale Club. And then afterwards, he confessed, not bad for a city college guy. He bought his way into the Yale Club, but yet he wants all the signifiers of that old money. He wants that. He's wearing a signet ring. He's wearing a very exquisite suit. He hates Bud's suit. Bud's suit is okay, you know? Bud had said to his dad, 50K doesn't get you to first base in the Big Apple, 40% in taxes, 15 grand in rent, blah, blah, blah. I need good suits for 400 bucks a piece, which would be like 
1100 bucks in today's so that's not a bad suit not at all but it's not bespoke not right at all yeah but the vulgarity of the 80s he got that he got that there are two women in the movie i guess three if you count the secretary there are three women in a movie and only one of them really has anything to do in the movie that's Daryl Hannah as this sort of goddess girlfriend that everybody wants that has slept with Michael Douglas and has been, I don't know, kind of loaned to Charlie Sheen, has been bequeathed to Charlie Sheen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Plus, there was a prostitute one night with the cocaine in the limousine. And one on the plane. Oh, yeah, one on the plane. Right. You know, the thing is, I have to say this may make me very unpopular in my first clubhouse panel. Don't hate me. But the whole thing reminded me of Donald Trump in so many ways. I couldn't stand it. And that's probably why I was so turned off by the movie this time around. First of all, Charlie Sheen's mouth is just like Donald Trump's mouth in the movie. No, wait. If Trump had, you know, chin lipo, you would not believe how similar their mouths are secondly that vulgar display of expensive stuff it you know what if you are a great art collector or you're a great uh stamp collector or wine collector you know you really focus on it and you value the chase it's something you're passionate about we see the accumulation of goods in this movie but those goods don't give anybody pleasure. Think about that for a second. There's something, as Dr. Brad just said, there's something about the ethics of the money that needs to be explored because it was money for money's sake. It was money to show off. It was money to very deliberately build your ladder from one class to the next or the next above that. But, you know, there's also something about people talking about money the way they do in a movie about wall street and deals and stuff that's so reason transactional yeah like money for the sake of money you know how much is enough he asks there is no such thing as enough but there's no talk of values there's no real family life there's no real honesty The family that we see, we know the dad is having sex with other people. We know that the family is just a sort of performance now and then. There's something just very, I don't know, cold about it. It's not really what you wanted to talk about. No, no, no. That's quite all right. I mean, I think it's interesting. All the points you made are very interesting. Al, did you have a thought on that? Yeah, I just wanted, uh, Lisa, to what you were saying. I think I agree with you. And I, and I think Stone's entire thesis is, is in that scene where Sheen asks, you know, is this enough? At a point in that film, this is how much regard I have for you, Paul. I actually took notes when I watched this movie to prepare. So Me too. Uh, but, but it's your thing, so you got to take notes. Gecko says this. He points to a painting. He says, I bought this painting for 60K 10 years ago. Today, I can sell it for 600K. The illusion is real. And the more real the illusion becomes, the more people want it. And I think that's the whole thing that, that Stone is saying. There's this whole life of money, this whole, to your point, all these things that look like they should be enjoyable, that they're all an illusion. But what's happened is we've made the illusion look real. This whole kind of, you know, money can solve everything. The more realer we've made that illusion, the more people want it. And then 
you know, it's all empty is, is you know, kind of obviously what, what Stone is pointing to. Brad, what are your thoughts on that? There's so much to unpack from this movie. And one thing that really stood out for me, we're talking a little bit about quotes there. Lou Mannheim, who was so, almost sort of the superego of the movie, who's like, hey, you know, there's way too much excess. And he had this one quote that really stood out for me. Money makes you do things you don't want to do. Amen. And yeah, right. And that one really hit me hard hearing that because, you know, he was talking about how sort of slow and steady wins the race. There's lots of people trying to get rich quick. I saw him as being sort of the conscience, sort of the ethical mindset within the movie, or at least the counterpoint to to Gordon Gecko. And I was also really fascinated, too, with that ascent. So looking at it from more of a national perspective, too, given that I wasn't in New York at the time, it seems like those outward displays of wealth seem to be, you know, sort of location specific and within certain groups of people, because the research on ultra wealthy individuals across the country shows actually the opposite. It actually shows that on a statistical basis, for example, the one study we did, there was a thousand higher net worth individuals. And, and again, in that category of 11 million in net worth, the average that people were paying for watches was about 800 bucks. So it wasn't a $15,000 gold Rolex. And so sort of fascinated with the main street versus wall street outward displays of wealth. And, and how do people show that they're wealthy? How do they show that they've made it? And again, r- real extreme example, it, it's great to have attorney here to sort of lend credence to, yeah, that's kind of how it was over there (laughs) within that group of people. I think watches are very regionally specific too. And in certain parts of the country, you know, walking around with an $800 watch makes you the baller in town, you know? And whereas the watch game in New York City is just, I mean, don't even come to me with your entry-level Panerai. Brad, I want to ask you the question, I think probably the question that Oliver Stone gets the most. And Turney, I want to know if this had any influence on how you chose to get to Wall Street. But Oliver Stone is known as a progressive. Some people would call him a socialist. Some people would call him a lot of other things. But his intent was, I believe, to make a morality play about the dangers of greed and excessive consumption. And yet, in the end, this movie probably motivated a large percentage of a whole generation of mostly men, as Lisa rightly points out, to go to Wall Street and be a part of it. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that matter. And then I'll throw it to Turney to say, did the movie ever influence the way you thought about Wall Street before you went to work there? Okay, so I'm going to get pretty deep on this one. And I'm going to go to Carl Jung, who really does talk about the shadow part of ourself. And so I really totally agree with you. This was a total movie about how terrible these traders are on Wall Street what a terrible place it is. And there's Lou, who might have a little bit of ethics with him, but but everyone else is terrible. And Lou's a dinosaur, clearly, also. Yeah, Lou's on his last leg. You know, he's not doing so well. <laughs> So definitely, definitely there. And then on the flip side, though, there's that part of us that thinks that, you know, that wants status, right? We do. We want status. Like So one of the things that, that I always have a bit of a chuckle at, and it's utterly ridiculous, is where we judge each other and judge ourselves because we really care about what people think. You know, so we're on social media. We really, really do care. It's funny because there are certain groups that really try not to care. And then you have a status within that group, like how much I don't care more than you don't care. And so it's really how we're wired as human beings. And it goes back to our development as a species. 99.9% of our time on earth has been small little bands of 100, 150 people. And if you weren't acutely aware of your status within that little tribe, you died. You'd just sort of be exiled or they would kill you (laughs) because you need to be aware of your status. You need to be aware of where you're ranking. You know, you don't want to have too much stuff because then people would kill you for being selfish and you don't want to have too little and you want to attach yourself to the person who seems to have high status so that you can be 
protected. And so I'm always really fascinated with this because this is something we all have. And so it is not surprising that like Gordon Gecko really, he's dripping with status, right? And outward displays of wealth. I think back to like the Viking days where they would actually wear gold bands and the number of gold bands showed your status. And, and ultimately that protected you and kept you alive. Like if you can show the world that I have status, then you're also telling them if you try to attack me or hurt me or kill me, it'll come at a, at a very deep cost for you and your family. So these outward displays of status are sort of baked into our DNA as a species. And so I'm not surprised that it led to people being really interested in pursuing that type of relationship with money. Wolf on Wall Street, the same thing. I mean, it's a meme right now on social media. I, I do a lot of stuff on TikTok. There's just constant discussion about it and clips from it because I think there is that seductive nature. And I think it really does relate to our desire to have status, which I think relates on a very deep level to our desire to thrive and survive, essentially. I love it. Tony, what did you think about Wall Street before you got there? And did the movie influence your impression? Between like that and Liar's Poker, you know, it's like, where else can, you know, a B student from Ohio University with a 970 SAT score go to make millions of dollars? So it seemed like the best game in town. But, you know, one thing I would like to say is, I'm guessing, I'm making this up, but Gordon Gecko's firm is probably 100 employees, right? 80 of them are good people who go home to families and, and like live normal lives. And then just kind of commenting on what we've kind of all been connecting the dots with. And I did a TED talk on this. My entire life was kind of predicated on this theory of if then. And so when I was at Morgan Stanley making $22,000 a year, I was saying to my friends at the bar, if I could make $50,000 a year, then all of my problems would go away. And then I was like, if I could get that girl, then I'd be happy. If I got that promotion, then I'd have a career. And when I made $2 million, I was saying, if I could make $3 million, then everything would be perfect. And so it never worked. And and it took, you know, 15 years of me sort of chasing this idea of happiness. And, And it literally took me to stop chasing it before I ever became happy. But it's the kind of thing that, is easy to sort of fall into. And you start believing, like Brad mentioned, confusing self-worth with net worth and kind of start believing some of this stuff. And it is a very, very slippery slope. And another thing Lisa said, which I, I found so ironic, the two main female leads have masculine names, right? Sean Young and Daryl Hannah. And so I was just like, literally almost the entire cast seemed like male names. But yeah, the truth of the matter is there are plenty of good people on Wall Street but the other side of that is also there are plenty of, of bad. So I think that's a really great point that you made, because this movie, which I observed with great seriousness today, makes it seem that Hal Holbrook, Lou Mannheim, is the only decent person on Wall Street. And it's good to know that in real life, there are plenty of nice, good people with good values and so on. I guess I just want to say, and I know that I wasn't called on, but you know how. Please, please, Lisa, don't ever let it happen again, but please go ahead. Okay. There was a pillow that I used to see in gift shoppies in New York and in Beverly Hills that said, whoever has the most toys wins. And, you know, you'd buy that for your rich friend who has everything else anyway, probably had two of those pillows. There was a consumption that was almost frantic 
to get the latest thing, to buy the newest thing, to buy, as you said, a starter Panerai. In California, in Los Angeles, the restaurants would display the Bentleys and the Porsches and the whatevers at the outer perimeter so that people coming in would see those cars and those cars would say, this is a restaurant for those kinds of people and your Toyota would be parked in the very back. And in New York, since we didn't have cars, you know, it was your watch. Your watch was your car. Your watch were your wheels. Those those signifiers of whether it was uh, this brand or that brand told other people that you belonged. And the overall feeling I got in 2021 was of this tremendous insecurity, no one being more insecure, of course, than Gordon Gecko. Yeah, on a very fundamental level, for sure. And no amount of toys that he dies with will ever fill that void inside of him. Correct. I just want to put a quick tag on it because it was mentioned twice, the Hal Holbrook character being the only good, you know, decent, et cetera, on Wall Street. There's almost a throwaway line, but at one point uh, in the office when Sheen's talking to his, his buddy there, I can't remember his name, but... Marv. Marv, thank you, Marv. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Marv says, ah, yeah. He lost all his cash in the 73 crash. So even him, it was like he was a player and he got his kind of humility through having lost the race. Wait, I have a question. Why is Sir Larry Wildman considered a bad guy? By association. Because Terrence Stamp always plays bad guys. That's right. It's the snarl. It's the snarl. I mean, he's doing his job, though. Yeah. He just played a pope. Oh, maybe that's demonstrating your point. Sorry. We've brought Danielle on stage. Danielle, I just want to remind everybody we're recording this, so feel free to ask a question. Hi. Yes, thank you for accepting my request to come up. I haven't seen the movie Wall Street. I've seen Wolf of Wall Street, so I'm guessing that it's similar. It sounds like there's a lot of similarities there. And what I've found really interesting, I'm sure there was a line by the main villain where he shouted that greed is good. And I find this really interesting. There's a lot of history around this in economics and it started back with Adam Smith who said that it's okay to pursue growth and money and economic growth in order to improve your own situation. It kind of highlights to me the struggle that we have with greed and moving forward and at what point does it become selfish. And so I'm curious if anybody has any ideas on what are the signs where it's moving away from a healthy striving towards selfishness and over-reliance on status. Thanks, Danielle. I think there's two levels of this. One is an economic argument that the most efficient way to operate a company is to maximize shareholder wealth. That I'm not saying that's a non-controversial one. And the other one is more personal, which is at what point does our personal consumption become greed? I'd love to hear from any of the panelists on that. I have a quick comment. There was a moment for me that I felt a big shift and I was working at a hedge fund called the Galleon Group and my former boss uh, you know, got 11 years for insider trading. But there was a moment where I started making decisions based on consequence versus right and wrong. And that is when 
you know, I started heading off the wrong path. And so I would start making decisions saying, well, I'm not going to get caught or no one's going to find out or, and it was all based on consequences. And those were all of the, you know, the decisions that led me to two rehabs, blowing myself up, losing everything. But growing up, I instilled in me making decisions based on right and wrong. And I think that is a, a key determinant in sort of greed and being a, a positive influence to society versus uh, just being greedy. I'll chime in here too. I, it is human nature to be on that hedonic treadmill. I, I know you've all heard of that. It's just this like, attorney illustrated it beautifully and, and all the studies show the exact same thing. You ask somebody how much it will take to make them happy and the, the end point is always more. It's always higher. I feel like this is part of what, again, sort of has allowed us to survive as a species, right? I was thinking about my own like workaholism and, and all of that. And I traced it back to like great, great, great grandfather who died in Ireland in a poorhouse. And I feel like, you know, the message is work harder, work harder. It's like a survivor, survival type of mentality. And I think that's human nature. We're sort of built to do that. I mean, it, it helps us evolve. It helps us innovate. And then of course, the downside, Turney illustrated this again. And I know, Paul, you've talked about this a lot. The problem is that if you actually achieve the goal, like if you actually achieve that highest level goal, that's when people start to dip into, they have an existential moment at the very least. It's like, oh, wait a second. I thought this pursuit and achieving this goal was going to somehow change me on the inside or hmm. give me that extra sense of happiness. Or, I mean, Bud in the movie was thinking this would be the case. And then he hit that existential crisis. It's like, this didn't actually fill this need. This external money is not going to s fix this internal, why am I here on earth? What matters to me? And so I always find that fascinating where if you actually do achieve the goal, and I've seen this with artists and musicians, that's when the existential crisis comes because it's like looking behind the curtain of the Wizard of Oz and realizing there is no wizard and just being stuck in that moment because some people have spent their entire life trying to pursue it. They've sacrificed everything, their health, their family, their relationships in the pursuit of this thing. And then you get it and it, it, tremendous disappointment around what this is not actually going to give you. I went to college in the 70s, which probably makes me the senior person here. And in the 70s, admitting or even feeling that money was the end of all, that was the point, was not the way we were thinking. What was the goal, Lisa? Oh, to be, to do something relevant, to do something of meaning, to make life better in some way. I mean, not so kumbaya, but, you know, certainly not amassing something for oneself. It was much more for the community, for the larger good. I used to try to explain it this way. The way pot was smoked in the, or we called it pot, you call it weed, was consumed was in a very communal way. You'd have some and you pass it and pass it and pass it around the room or the concert or wherever you were. And that was the 70s. The 80s was hoarding this white powder, which made you less social and sort of more involved in yourself. Whereas marijuana was more fuzzy. You know what I mean? Does that even make sense? And the idea of money for the sake of money was something you would not say. Al, what do you think of that 
pot versus cocaine dynamic? So I was going to ask a question earlier, and then I'm now taking the pot versus cocaine dynamic into my question. I was going to ask, are the entrepreneurs of today, the you know finance folks of the 80s, is the kind of hustle and grind the equivalent of greed is good is the you know biohacking, sleep hacking, diet hacking kind of mindset. This kind of improvement for improvement sakes, the modern version of it, and then that led me to. You know, and then when you said cocaine versus marijuana, seventies, eighties, you know, we're now in an era of microdosing, right? I'm weakly surprised by how prevalent microdosing, a variety of drugs, is for the purpose of optimizing performance, optimizing awareness, optimizing you know aspects of experience. I can see the the 70s, 80s, you know, marijuana versus cocaine argument, Lisa, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it just gets me thinking about where we are right now and the drugs of choice now of the ambitious class. Yeah, I love that. The ambitious class. That's very good. That sort of says it all. And ambitious for what? Yeah, I think that's what that's what Stone's asking, right? Jules, you've been hanging out. Is there something you wanted to throw into the conversation? Yes, thanks, Ann. Hi, everyone on the panel. Thanks for bringing me up. Another movie that reminds me of is American Psycho, which also has some relevancy towards 80s finance and decadence as well. The Patrick Bateman character and his comparison with the business card, that scene with Paul Allen, where everybody in the company is comparing uh, business cards. How do you see the Patrick Bateman character in comparison to Gordon Gecko and uh, Bud Fox? Great question, Jewel. Tony, you have any thoughts on that? Patrick Bateman was an incredible character. It was just so, I think it really symbolized the entire generation of yuppies who, you know, believed that there were no limits and nothing, nothing could stop them, you know, no matter what. And so I kind of saw Patrick Bateman more as a symbol and less, less as a character. It's hard for me to compare them. Gecko didn't murder anybody <laughs> overtly, right? Very true. It was a, more of a dark comedy, but I did like the commentary of the contrast. Oh, it's phenomenal. I yeah. love it. My favorite part of it was his obsession with Phil Collins. <laughs> and Huey Lewis. I think he would not be marijuana or cocaine. That's probably meth, right? Is that, is that the problem? <laughs> he was a bit intense. Before we take any more questions, I know we're going to lose Dr. Brad Klontz here on the hour. I can go another few minutes with a few people if there are questions. But I want to say, first of all, thank you, Brad, for joining us. And I ask everybody in the audience to follow Brad. He's a uh, very interesting guy, writes a lot about a lot of important stuff. He's got a great TikTok account. Also, Brad, is there anything else you want to uh, mention before you take your leave? I just really appreciate being a part of this esteemed panel. The last thing I would just throw out there, and if we had another hour, I would love to spend an hour talking about this, but it's the generational wealth stuff. And it's the relationship between Bud and his father and the dynamics therein. And what I saw is Bud trying, you know, so he's trying to be upwardly mobile. He's trying to move up the socioeconomic chain. His dad's more working class. And it's almost like along that process, it's essentially you're trying to move to a new tribe. And that's the feeling. The feeling is like, I'm leaving my tribe, my family, I'm trying to join this new tribe. And you don't know the rules. And I think part of what was happening is he's looking, you know, looking at what's actually happening within that subset of people. And, and some of it's appalling, but it's attractive. And a big part of the movie was his evolution and his development as a human being, trying to figure out what sort of values do I want to let go of? 
that my father had that perhaps was keeping him stuck in a socioeconomic sense versus what sort of values or approaches should I be adopting that Gordon Gekko is exhibiting. And I saw the, the movie was an entire struggle for him and his development to figure out what parts do I want to abandon from my father and my family of origin and that working class mindset? And what parts should I adopt from this version <laughs> of this upper class mindset? And I saw the movie was one big struggle for him trying to figure out who he is in this new socioeconomic class. So with that, I just want to thank everyone for having me um, be a part of this. Thanks, Brad. We'll see you again soon, hopefully. Anybody else have questions, please go ahead and raise your hand. I'm going to go around the panel and ask for your favorite quote or scene in the film. Lisa, if you don't have one because the whole thing was so offensive, that's okay too. You, which scene would be the most emblematic of what you think Stone was trying to say? Money never sleeps, pal. That's horseshit. Greed is good for a lack of a better word. That's mine. That's Jules. Well, the private plane scene sort of says 1980s excess to me. Two men wearing suspenders, having a beautiful woman on a plane, taking a trip that was probably not necessary, but enabled. They could do it. They could do whatever they wanted. I don't have a favorite scene. I don't really like this movie. I don't think I've been unclear about that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not offended by it. I just, as I told you earlier today, it just seemed like everything I disliked about the 80s rolled up into one over-the-top movie. But I think it's really fascinating to look at. You know, the 1980s feels very different to me from what today feels like. But, you know, who knows? This could end up, the 20s could end up like them too. Who knows? I'm not smart enough to know. Lisa, I ran across the review. I didn't run across it. I sought it out. Roger Ebert's review from 1987 of the movie. And he called oh, out, good. he actually called out Donald Trump as being one of these characters, one of these dislikable characters. And he mentioned that he might run for president in 1987. Seriously? Yeah, because I think he had said wow. it in his biography. So, oh, in his biography, which was written by someone else. Well, you know, <laughs> says the author who writes her own words. I love it. Your disdain for ghostwriters. No, not, not all ghostwriters. I think my disdain for Donald Trump colors my ability to appreciate this movie because it really did give me some serious Trump vibes. But you know what? Trump came of age at that time. That was the era you started introducing yourself before you even said your name. You told people what you did. You wore your achievements on your heart or on your wrist or in your driveway. It became a show-off time. And, you know, I guess I just want to amplify what Brad said, which is it was about trying to lift yourself up to the next place. But once you got there, were you still a good son? Were you still a good father? Were you still a good person? Were you still yourself? So I'll take that as a segue, Lisa. My favorite line in the movie is from Martin Sheen, and he says, uh, it's yourself you got to be proud of, Huckleberry, uh, in response to Charlie Sheen saying, uh, one day you'll be proud of me, Dad. Oh, right. Yes. And then he tells him he's proud of him lying on the hospital bed, and thank God he has the opportunity to say it before he dies. Turning, you got a quality line for us? 
I don't have a favorite line. You can't uh, say greed is good. Don't say greed is good. <laughs> no, I have two favorite moments in the movie. They're not really lines, but you know, and this is me sort of being a geek. But in great movies, very often the protagonist gets what they want, but it comes at a big price. And so I love when he goes into James Spader's office and he's like, "Oh, you know, we got to meet. You want to come with me?" And we walk into the conference room. And we find out that Bud Fox is now the president of Blue Star Airlines. And within three seconds, we find out that Gordon Gekko's breaking up the company. And so, like, to me, that was a great moment, a film moment, because he got what he want, but it came at a huge cost. And then at the end of the film, I thought it was, I liked the redemption of Bud Fox's line saying, you know, to Gordon at the very end, he goes, the only thing I ever wanted to be was, was Gordon Gekko. But I'm just Bud Fox, and I'll always be Bud Fox. And to me, that was the moment where, okay, he didn't get what he wanted, but he got what he needed. And and so I thought that was a great moment. What I love about that scene in the lawyer's conference room is I don't think there's any accidental lines in this movie. I think everything is planned out. But in the background, you hear him say, your boy's going to have the shortest executive career since that pope who got poisoned. In reference to Pope, <laughs> in reference to Pope John Paul the First, who was Pope for like thirty-seven days or something, and whose holy card I found in my mom's files after she died, and it's sitting on my desk. So, also, I caught an error in the film. So, the movie starts in nineteen eighty-five, right? And there's a moment where Bud Fox is talking to his buddy. What was his buddy's name? Marvin, and he was talking about Gecko, and he goes. Yeah, right after the Challenger blew up, Gecko was shorting NASA stock, but that's ah, 86. And NASA's not a public company. Well, that's too, but. Great <laughs> catch. I just want to note the criminality of it taking an hour for us to mention the great James Spader. The cast is so fantastic. And in fact, in that Roger Ebert review, he said that Sheen didn't quite capture the evilness that he thought Spader should have been in that role to do just that. Yes. The cast was great. I mean, I don't know who could have done the part better than Charlie Sheen. And now, of course, when we think about Charlie Sheen, we think about all of Charlie Sheen. And at the time, he wasn't a known, you know, crazy person or prostitute employer or marrier or whatever. He was just a young guy. And of course, there was the fact that his real father played his father in the movie extra you know rubbing it in <laughs> there's a lot of art and life imitating each other in yeah. the film and the in the cast and in oliver stone himself as well lisa when we've spoken about your book james spader is always used as the archetypal evil preppy kid in the john yes. hughes movies yes and here next to gordon gecko and bud fox he was absolutely low-key wasn't he i mean he was sort of uh, slight, and he was the guy playing it safe, or wanted to. I thought that was a good performance. I like the guy, James Karen, or Robert Karen, the guy who played the head of the first firm where Bud and Marv worked and well, where everybody worked. But would you explain to me how Bud Fox was working for Gordon Gecko, but yet he was still at his old firm? Turning, you want to take that? He was trading Gordon Gecko's personal money. So it was a, like a retail account. And so there's a scene with Anacott Steel where he tells him to buy 1,500 calls, which is only right. like 
150,000 shares. And then I forget like how many shares, but it wasn't a lot. As soon as he hangs up the phone, he tells his people that they're going all in and it got steel. So they got that part right because Gordon did a sort of small order with this smaller retail broker, but he was really buying it for himself. Does, sure. that, does that make sense? It does, but isn't it sad that I didn't understand that? No, I don't think so. It's complicated. It's not as complicated as understanding the frozen concentrated orange juice market that you have to do in trading places. Let's <laughs> have a panel on that one. Well, I was thinking about what should be next, trading places or pretty in pink, or maybe I need to have a millennial join us and analyze why I'm fascinated with all these movies from the 1980s. I think the 80s are having a moment personally. Well, I just want to say thank you again to all the panelists, Tony Duff, Lisa Bernbach, A.M. Bott, and the late, great Brad Klontz. He's still alive. He's just not on the panel. <laughs> and I want to thank all you in the audience for joining today. Please follow all the panelists, follow each other. Before we take off, Tony, Lisa, Al, tell me what's going on in your world and what you're finding to be of value on Clubhouse. I'm being safe and raising my daughter and writing every day. And I'm 11 and a half years sober, so that's good. I'm just trying to, trying to be a good person. Clubhouse is relatively new to me, so I'm just dipping my toe in the pool, and uh, we'll see where it takes me. Turney's book is called The Buy Side, and it is a fantastic read. It's funny. It's interesting. It'll rip at you at moments, but it's a really good read. By all means, y'all pick it up. Lisa, what's new for you? Well, I'm still doing my podcast, Five Things That Make Life Better, which is available wherever podcasts are available. And I get to meet interesting, fun people, smart people every week. And so maybe some of tonight's listeners will check it out. And this is my first event on Clubhouse. So I'm interested to see what people think and whether... The reach is, you know, how big it is. I find it fascinating. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining. I look forward to learning on this platform together with people like you. So thanks for your being open to it. Al, what are your, what's on your mind as we depart this evening? On the Clubhouse front, I've gotten fairly active on here. And I see a bunch of party hats. Welcome to Clubhouse. Party hats uh, indicate you've been here seven days or less. So welcome. I run rooms on Thursday uh, in the middle of the day with uh, Joan Ball, who was in the audience a little earlier. Uh, and Saturday, we're on a two-part thing. On Thursdays, it is sort of an open discussion. And then Saturday, we take that same topic. Actually, we did Ambition last week. Thursday, I had an open discussion on Ambition, a bunch of people on stage. And then Saturday afternoon, it is kind of one-on-one. -on -one. So John and I bring people up one at a time and kind of work through the topic with them and what's going on in their lives. Uh, this week, we're doing disorientation. And then I'm a part of a bunch of philosophy rooms tonight at 10 o'clock, if you can imagine staying up that late to do this. We got a room in one of the clubs on Heidegger's being in time. It tends to be a really fun group, a bunch of big brains. And I, I'm, I'm in there just basically to make jokes and ask, what does that mean? Finding some good communities on here. Those of you who are new, you got to curate well, but there are some really good corners of this platform. There's a lot of junk too, but a lot of good corners. Beyond that, my friend, I'm just tending to my little nonprofit here expanding our mission to create access uh, for historically and systemically under-resourced communities to kind of accelerate them into the tech world without carrying any of the Gordon Gecko baggage around who they got to be. I love it. 
you all probably noticed I used AM and Al interchangeably. Al's an old friend and AM is uh, an old friend too, just goes by a couple different names. Sometimes AM on Clubhouse and follow him for sure. He's one of the most interesting and wise people that I know. It's the microdosing that determines what personality I have in a given. <laughs> hey man, whatever floats your boat. My parting thought is what Lou Mannheim said, you know, man looks in the abyss, there's nothing staring back at him. And at that moment, man finds his character and that's what keeps him out of the abyss. Thanks so much to Tony Duff, Lisa Bernbach, Brad Klontz, and to AM Bot for moderating with me and being our spirit guide through the land that is the Clubhouse app. We'll probably be doing more of those. So if you want to get on the Clubhouse, shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. And I'll send you one of the invites that I have. If you're on Clubhouse already, go ahead and follow me. Follow the Money and Pop Culture Club that I'm associated with. Do I own it? Is it an ownership thing? I don't know. I started it. Join that. Follow us. Let's do more of that kind of stuff. Thanks for sticking around all the way to the end. If you like this episode, please share it with three friends via the email or the socials. Join the Crazy Money Listeners Facebook group on, uh, well, on Facebook, as you know. And if you have a minute, write and review the show on the podcast app on which you are listening. I am grateful for you sticking around. Got a great interview next week with two law professors whose new book is called Mine, and it explores the nature of ownership and possession. I can't wait to share that with you. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.